Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. This is a podcast hosted entirely by the graduate students in the Department of Anthropology at The Ohio State University. Today you'll be hearing a conversation between Dr. Rob Cook and Laura Crawford, who are going to talk about archaeology and how we identify migrations in the past. Uh, I'm Dr. Robert Cook. I'm a, a faculty member at the, the Ohio State University in the Department of Anthropology. And I'm Laura Crawford. I'm a PhD student here at the uh, Anthropology Department at The Ohio State University. I'm really interested in the subject of migration uh, as a research uh, area um, for lots of reasons, but mainly um, uh, because it tells so much about the human condition and it's been such a constant in the, in the human story. My subject area is the greater spread of Mississippian culture, which is the first uh, corn farmers really in the United States before it was the United States, uh, about a thousand uh, AD, really up until the time of European contact and, and they kind of had a major spread of their tradition throughout the, throughout the, the country uh, over those several hundred years. I'm just sort of interested in um, the Thule migration, the migration of the ancestors of the modern Inuit people uh, across the whole of the Western Arctic. It is one of the most controversial and important topics in Arctic archaeology, and there has been a lot of debate as to the causes of it, um, what sort of economic push-pull factors there were, what sort of resources were drawing people eastward, and um, the results of this migration have had uh, long-term effects on the ethnic and genetic makeup of present Arctic peoples. Yeah, and, and similarly, my uh, area is, is, is tied into some, some economic uh, push-pull factors, and by that, what we're both referring to are the, the things that pull people into a new region, the things that make it more attractive, and or the things that push them out of a region make it less attractive. And these kinds of things can be, be any number of things from violence uh, in the world today that we see pushing people out of areas to religious freedom to all kinds of, uh, of issues. Of course, in, in archaeology, it can be difficult to assess those kinds of things. But one thing that, that I know Laura and I both have, have looked at is the influence of the environment, not in a deterministic way, but in a, in a way that makes certain things m uh, more possible in some places than others. And in my own case, I know that at the time of the, uh, the Mississippian movements, um, there definitely was a period uh, known as the medieval warm period, which was a period of, of sort of ideal conditions for being, a, in my area, a, a, a corn farmer. Uh, very warm, relatively moist conditions that were very well suited for the tropical grass that was domesticated in, in, in the form of maize. And so what became attractive is that the area in the Ohio River Valley, which is where I study, um, was an area that maintained an ideal uh, set of environmental conditions throughout the sequence uh, that the Mississippians were in existence, whereas in the more sort of heartland, uh, homelands of the Mississippian peoples, the environment became a lot riskier, um, and so they had to kind of develop different ways to deal with uh, the, the difficulties that arose, whereas in my area they uh, could kind of live an ideal life at a fairly, um, a fairly what I would call, and anthropologists would call egalitarian or kind of even um, non-ranked, meaning not 
no inherited social differences. People kind of achieved their positions in life rather than being born into different families of, of prestige. Whereas in the more complicated systems, they indeed did have inherited uh, systems, complicated systems that could deal with the, the greater uncertainties of the environment. So they could pool resources and reallocate them in, in, a, in a centralized way. Whereas in, in, in the, um, the area that I say, they didn't need to do that. They could they could make do um, uh, in a in a much uh, more equal type of uh, type of, uh, of setting. So in my in my sense, those are the push and pull kinds of things that have have made the most sense to my work. But how about you, Laura, and yours? Well, the environment is certainly a factor. Um, it's no coincidence that the medieval warm period and the Tula migration occurred concurrently. So um, archaeologists have not been able to dismiss this as mere coincidence. And um, there was a warming trend in the Arctic prior to the medieval warm period. And so you see things like the development of whaling in Alaska and um, incipient social hierarchies, meaning that the society is beginning to differentiate people according to wealth and status. And the people with wealth and status are the people who are the whaling captains, the umuliks is what they call them. And the umuliks would get a greater share of the whales they hunted, and this was translated into prestige and greater power. And actually, the medieval warm period was not an ideal time for Arctic peoples. We might think that, yes, warmer conditions in the Arctic, great, um, but this doesn't appear to be the case. Many of the um, prey animals Arctic peoples relied upon are ice-obligate species. Seals and walruses, they need ice to reproduce, they need ice to rest upon so they can do their hunting and so they can survive. So you take that away and the people in the area are left to sort of come up with new ways to take more out of their environment. And so whaling becomes a focus. Now, with an immediate warm period, it's been suggested that there was less ice in the Arctic during the summer, which freed people up to maybe follow the bowheads across what we now call the Northwest Passage and into Greenland. But there's a lot of uh, debate as to whether or not that was the case, and the most recent evidence suggests that no, in fact, there was still summer ice and that the Thule would have had to traverse huge areas of terrain that were absolutely inhospitable, no resources, or very few resources whatsoever, and would have to leapfrog basically across the Arctic all the way from Alaska to Greenland within a span of a very few years. So um, yes, weather definitely played a role, but what that role is exactly is um, up to debate. How long did the migration take the Thule? Roughly, if you had to estimate in, in years. Probably a decade or so. So it's a very quick migration, and that is attested to by material culture found in Greenland and places like what is now Nunavut, Ellesmere Island in particular. So there was not sufficient time for material culture to change. And not only that, but we have pottery that was made in Alaska in Ellesmere's Island. Now, Thule pottery was relatively basic. It wasn't meant to last. It wasn't made very fancy. It's kind of like your modern-day Tupperware. You use it, and it gets worn out. It's not meant to be passed down as an heirloom or used for many years. 
you just make a new pot when the time comes. And so if you're transporting a Thule pot from Alaska to Ellesmere Island, you're probably not going to make it last for more than a few years, which suggests that the speed of migration was incredibly rapid, much more rapid than anywhere else in the world as far as I know. So it's a very unique case. And the rate of migration has, people have tried to use things like radiocarbon dating. Dating um, the level of carbon left in uh, a particular life form, obviously we're all carbon-based life forms, uh, people, plants, animals. And so by dating the amount of carbon uh, decay via a, a very regular half-life, you can estimate the age of that thing that died. Radiocarbon dating doesn't get at the speed at which it happened because of the error of, of radiocarbon dating. In other words, you can't track a 10-year interval in radiocarbon years. It'll give you a plus or minus 30 at best. Uh, so you, you can track maybe a 60 to 100-year interval. And that's true in my area as well. From, from my area, the um, sort of the history of the problem has really went back and forth between whether migration in fact happened at all in comparing it uh, with a sort of a exchange or a, a, a diffusion of ideas rather than a movement of people. And, and, and so radiocarbon dating really um, has been instrumental in my own work to, to show that in fact migration occurred because we were able to directly date individual migrants. Um, uh, and and even though there's an air range, we could tell that they did migrate and we could tell that they migrated at the very beginning of the cultural tradition rather than much later in time. It used to be thought that there was sort of a collapse of Mississippian societies and then a kind of a, a spread uh, after the, the fall of, of Mississippians, right? Sort of a Roman style. Um, but in fact, what we now know is it actually was at the very beginning of the sequence, which of course changes things completely as rather than being sort of a after the fact uh, addition onto what had already developed, now we see it as being sort of seminal to the beginning of this cultural tradition, which, uh, but without the radiocarbon dating, um, we wouldn't have been able to tell that. Fortunately, in my case, even a hundred year interval is enough to, to show that, that, that that's important. One thing in, in my area that, of course, people have known about for a long time are the, the presence of sort of fancy objects, things that take a long time to make or are made from precious materials from distant locations. You find these things with sort of important people, high status people, and they kind of commented on the lack of there being that many of those things to demonstrate a connection. And so what we started to realize after getting into the research and finding that there is evidence for migration in other ways is we started to recognize that in fact um, there has been an overlooked uh, piece of evidence for migration in pottery in very plain utilitarian, as you say very nicely, um, sort of a Tupperware kind of thing, where it's not your fancy dishes that are out on, on big holidays, but your things that you're storing things in, storing water, food, whatever. Um, and those are the things that represent your daily life. And so when you're talking about migration, you're talking about real people moving real places for a permanent duration, or what they hope to be a permanent duration, unless there's push factors there that push them onto somewhere else. And so in my area, we found all of this plain pottery that people kind of wrote off as sort of a carryover from an earlier culture in, 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 in the region, when in fact it's actually Mississippian plain pottery that is part of the migration evidence. Uh, but forever, uh, people 
didn't appreciate it for for what it was and now i think we're starting to realize hey that's the really interesting pottery and it's reoriented people to to begin looking at things differently instead of just the fancy things it might be the plain things that really can tell the story um sort of a hidden in plain sight and we've known about this pottery forever but now we're just starting to realize its significance and it's everywhere uh in, in many cases um and so i was just curious about, about that in in the in the Thule case how the plain pottery, because I mean, there's, there's fancier objects too, there's nicer objects. Um, do those move along with the people at the same rate or do you know? Absolutely. Um, it seems like uh, there was very little interaction between the Thule people in Alaska and the Dorset people who were indigenous to the Arctic regions further to the east. It does not appear that the Dorset people adopted any sort of Thule uh, technologies and, and vice versa. There really just seems to be no overlap and certainly as the Thule migrants moved they took with them their tools. Especially their harpoon heads are very diagnostic of uh, the different Arctic traditions in different regions. So when the Thule tradition was first defined in the early 20th century it was found in Greenland and the man who found it was advanced in thinking that certainly these people had had to have come from Alaska because their material culture was so similar. So I'm talking about things like houses, like harpoon types. Um, they would light their houses with uh, oil lamps, for example, and they had a very distinct shape to their oil lamps. So all of these things point to an Alaskan origin of the Thule people that is markedly different in material culture from the Dorset people who were indigenous to this area, who had migrated there many thousands of years earlier. And there just does not seem to be much overlap. We do have some few examples, contested examples evil, even of, um, of uh, Dorset artifacts in Thule habitation sites, but not the other way around. And so it's very strange. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of overlap, but there does seem to be very strong material evidence of the Thule migration eastward. And, um, of course, we cannot really date definitively how quick this migration was. And dating the Thule migration has been a very hotly contested subject. There's a question as to whether the Dorset people had actually died out before the Thule even came into the area. Um, I'm more, uh, more inclined to believe Max Friesen's dates, and he has good evidence to suggest that the Dorset were still alive and living in these areas when the Thule came into their lands with their new goods, and that there was just sort of a, a culture of avoidance. The Dorset were characterized as being these sort of timid people. So there are oral traditions among the Inuit today that talk about these people they call the Tunit. And so the Tunit were the people who made these eastern lands habitable. They created caribou drives and things like that so that when the Thule moved in, they could take advantage of the area's resources. But the way that the, the Inuit tell these stories is that the Tunit were very strong people, but peaceful and timid, and they would run away 
if they ever saw a Thule person. And so it appears that they were simply pushed out of their area. Um, and there are some stories that actually end with violence from the Thule against the Tunit, as they call them, or the Dorset, as we call them as archaeologists. And um, it's very interesting. Um, and what we know, there was a recent uh, paper published in Science, which is sort of confirmed what we thought all along is that there was very little to no interaction between the Thule and the Dorset. There appears to be no genetic traces of the Dorset people today in modern Inuit populations. It seems like from Alaska to Greenland you have one relatively homogeneous people, the Inuit. They share a language across this entire area with just different dialects the further you go east or west depending on which way you're going. And so it appears that there was a total population replacement in the area which makes the Thule migration also very unique. So you have speed, you have that aspect, but you also have the aspect of total population displacement or re replacement, which I don't know any other cases where we see something like that. It's really interesting, Laura, the, the, the discussion of the avoidance, sort of the situation of the Thule and Dorset sort of, sort of mutually coexisting for a, a time and then one sort of lasting perhaps longer than the other um, uh, in ways we probably don't fully understand. Um, in my case, it's really quite the contrast uh, in the sense that the, the migration really led to what I would and others have called kind of a hybrid culture or a multicultural uh, uh, situation where it seems as if there's those are there's two real fundamental differences in migration. One is sort of a, a coexistence of some kind. Avoidance uh, could turn into even a, a you know a conflict situation at times. And of course, the world is full of all kinds of situations of, of conflict and migrants and avoidance and, and, and acceptance in different ways. Um, and but the fact is the, the formation of true hybrids, the formation of a truly sort of multicultural democratic uh, sort of situation, is somewhat rare. Of course, and we still struggle with that in our own country, whether we've achieved it is, is arguable to say the least. In my study area, um, it does seem as if the two cultures, the Mississippians who came into the region for their own reasons, uh, certainly, um, and, and the local people who are descendants of local mound-building cultures uh, who had been there for thousands of years did, in fact, uh, mix and mingle in different ways. Um, and they did so more so in some places than in others. In the very beginning of, of the sequence, um, what seems to have happened is a real influx of these non-local migrants um, into kind of patches, and you talk about this too, where the, the, the Thule were reusing to some extent maybe earlier locations. And I think the same is true in my area, where they're coming into really ideal places to be a big time corn farmer, right? They're going into big floodplains that can support the kind of agriculture that they envision, uh, given where they came from. Um, and I don't know that there's so much of an avoidance um, as that the local people at that time, at least in those areas, were just doing something differently. At the time, they were hunting in small groups scattered about the landscape, hunting deer, gathering nuts, weren't really interested in those big, uh, big riverine settings. Um, but what happened in very short time after the initial influx is there does seem to be a true hybrid uh, mixing. And I think that this actually forms the most... Um, 
unique aspect of the situation where they start to form villages and the village itself um, uh, to define it is really just in in my terms um, uh, an egalitarian meaning you know everyone's equal more or less there might be a leader but it's not a high highly sort of um, uh, ranking you know um, by birth kind of leader but someone who achieved their position because they're very good at integrating people from diverse backgrounds, right? They're sort of a, they won the election, so to speak. Um, and in doing so, um, what they were able to do is accommodate differences within one, under one umbrella, one village. And I think the village, as it developed in my area, is somewhat unique. It's not a Mississippian village directly, but it's the combination of a Mississippian set of ideas mixing with a long history of local ideas and forming a true hybrid village. I mean, what's really interesting about it is, of course, that hybridity, that mixing, uh, involved mixing pottery traditions. We find sort of the local pottery types and the non-local pottery types in one place. We find local burial types. We find people that are um, uh, in flexed positions, meaning they're kind of, their legs are, and arms are tucked together almost in a fetal position of, of sorts versus what we would call extended, which is, is sort of laying you know, on your back uh, more in a way that we would tend to think of someone being buried at. But you see these completely integrated in one village, along with many other kinds of things. Housing styles can be local and non-local, all in one place. The common denominator uh, is that there is a, um, a focal point that develops, a true center of the village being a very large pole that represents kind of in what, what, what people have defined as an axis mundi, a world point, a world axis kind of a, um, that connects people together to the heavens, to the, the below uh, terrain, and creates a, um, creates a true sort of integrative uh, aspect to these multicultural traditions coming together under one roof. What's really interesting about this, of course, um, is that it is not something that we're just kind of concocting, making up because it's a good story. These are well-established oral histories among many Native people that are quite possibly descendants of the Fort Ancient culture that speak of the time in which they developed the pole as a... Uh, um, a key aspect, if not the aspect of their religion. The pole represents a sacred deity, uh, often takes a human form, and the, the pole itself becomes the thing that held the tribe together, held the group together in times that were very difficult. And what's fascinating is these oral histories were gathered by um, both native people and early anthropologists working with them. And in the oral histories, they talk about the pole developing at the time when maize agriculture became the focus. They talk about the pole coming about to hold people together in times of sort of multicultural disarray. So the oral history actually speaks to why some of these groups kind of came together. And then, of course, then links these groups with some living descendants in unique ways that no one had ever really thought about uh, before um, uh, we, could, we could fit this together. So it's quite different than in your case where it seems like a real avoidance. In my case, it seems like the mixing is everything. And really recognizing just how complicated people are in the past has, has kind of opened us up to understanding the true kind of meaning of these kinds of movements. So I found that really interesting, what you said about sort of the avoidance, because um, it, it struck me as quite different than, than, than my case. And, and it really is. It really is sort of a, a, a question that leaves us scratching our head as Arctic archaeologists. Why weren't these people intermingling at all? Um, one thing we do know is that the Thule were 
technologically superior to the Dorset, and we think that that may have had an impact, and the Thule were competing for the same resources as the Dorset. And with the superior technology, with their more hierarchical uh, social structure, and their more violent tendencies, may have all contributed to the Dorset being pushed into resources resource poor areas areas where they couldn't support as large of a population and eventually just sort of fading away and um, that technological complexity is something that has been cited again and again as as a reason for this avoidance the Dorset just wanted to keep the peace and keep their own lands and were willing to move away rather than compete with these people who were very technologically advanced. Um, we're talking about people who traversed the whole distance from Alaska to Greenland in a decade. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, you know, we're talking about very advanced watercraft. We're talking about very advanced hunting technology, toggling harpoon heads. We're talking about the ability to hunt whales, the ability to um, hunt caribou with bow and arrow, uh, the dog sled. So these are very mobile people. These are very adaptable people. These are technophiles. They're very, very advanced. And you know, their social system is quite different from the Dorset. We think that the Dorset had a very open society, very egalitarian society, and the two just did not mix. It didn't work for whatever reason, and it's something that has uh, confused archaeologists in the Arctic for a long time. And it would be really easy if we could just say, well, the Dorset, they had died out before the Thule even arrived, but dates don't seem to suggest that. And of course, radiocarbon dates being what they are, are complicated, and radiocarbon dates in the Arctic are further complicated by the old wood problem, uh, which is that the wood that you might find in an archaeological site can be hundreds of years old because it comes from driftwood which gets trapped in sea ice for many years and then can lay on a beach for another hundred years or so before somebody finally picks it up and uses it. Also you have the problem with dating sea mammal bones. Um, you get wonky dates because of the fact that these animals have lived in marine settings rather than terrestrial settings. So archaeologists have had to go back and kind of backtrack on what dates they're willing to accept and what dates they're willing to reject and so there's been a lot of controversy as to just the timing of, of the migration in the first place which has a huge impact on why they were moving whether it was for bowhead whales or other resources people have suggested that iron might have been a huge impetus for the Thule moving eastward, which would essentially deal with the problem that it wasn't so much climatically based as it was economically based. And of course the two go hand in hand, but it's just unclear. There are many unanswered questions and and that is why the Thule migration is, is so fascinating for, for Arctic archaeologists and it's, it's some sort of juggernaut of a problem that we've only just begun to pick away at. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and to kind of pick up on that, one thing that's very interesting in con contrast um, with my case is in the Thule case, there's obviously, like in any study of anything, there's always difference of opinion over time. But in, in, in the Thule case, there's never really been a, a time, it seems, that, that people just outright denied that there was a migration. It's other issues of the speed of it. The, did they avoid? Did they not avoid? 
um, were they around at the same time and so forth. But in my case, it actually, for a long time, people um, did not have um, uh, evidence to, to, to be conclusive that there was movement because, again, they were kind of looking in the wrong place to some extent looking for all of the fancy things that weren't there or the things that they think should be in this new place that they should have replicated from their homeland when in fact people change and, and, and time goes on. And, and so in my case it wasn't until fairly recently uh, that we had the kinds of tests that we needed to con conclusively show that movement had occurred. Um, so in the old days um, uh, um, people kind of kind of waffled on this. They kind of went back and forth. Is did they move? Did they not move? But no one had really examined directly the evidence that we needed uh, because we don't have a written record. We can't look at things even in an oral history that go back as far as we need to at that point. Um, but so what we needed to do is do direct biological testing uh, of uh, of people themselves. And so we did this in a number of different ways, involving bone chemistry, involving um, biodistance, sort of in, inferring genetic uh, similarities by using morphological traits. And what we've been able to show conclusively is that, in fact, absolutely did they have connections. And we can then date the people directly that we can demonstrate had these connections. And this is shown without any question, really, um, that, um, that there were these movements and that they were early. And then it sets up a whole new uh, set of questions. So in my area, it's actually been more of a transformative understanding of, of the fact of the migration itself. And once you can demonstrate that, then it opens up a million other questions um, that, that it sounds like have been questions in your area that have been, people have been asking for a little bit longer because they knew about this migration, then they started to ask these other questions. And, and, and so my, in my case, it kind of changes the, the game a little bit which I found really interesting. Um, and it kind of, you know, as much as we are archaeologists, it, it, as much as I study material culture, I mean, I can't really do it in isolation. In other words, I think the, f the flaw uh, in my area that is people have kind of studied just something in isolation, whether it be pottery, whether it be, um, you know, um, a, a settlement size or, you know, some, some element of that characteristic. But it wasn't until people began um, to look at it holistically in a way that allows for complexity of movement. In other words, for a long time, people tended to simplify the past, saying, well, you know, the past people kind of stayed put. They didn't move around that much, and um, they kind of lived um, uh, in, a, in a smaller world, so, so to speak. What we're starting to understand is that's really fiction. Uh, we've known and should have known for a long time, theoretically, that people have moved and been dynamic as long as people have been people, realistically. Um, this is the part of being human, and it's movement and big movement. Um, and why it comes when it comes to people becoming uh, a little bit sedentary, uh, that people think they don't move. Um, and in fact, um, so, so in my own work, um, I really consider myself an, an anthropologist, and by that I define it as really holistically examining the human condition. Someone who wants to understand people, you have to examine people directly, you have to examine their material, you have to juxtapose those against each other, because sometimes material doesn't change for long periods of time, despite great movements. Sometimes it changes very rapidly uh, when there are movements, and so it's, it's, it really requires that kind of triangulation of biological measures, material measures, uh, and oral history measures, uh, uh, among others, um, to really get at what the truth might be. Um, and because not everything's going to tell you the same thing. And of course, the more things that begin to tell you the same thing, the more exciting it gets. And I think that's what I'm starting to realize, at least in, in my own work. And again, I think in the Thule case, it's some of those elements been brought together for a longer period of time. People have known that there's this migration, um, whereas in my case, I think it's just being discovered in a conclusive way, even though older ideas have been around that suggested it based on very little data. Now we have data to really 
back it up in, in many ways. From very early on, it was clear from the material culture that the Thule had migrated there as a people and not as a culture wave. There are enough differences between Dorset and Thule settlements to really suggest that it was a movement of people. And of course, now we have the genetic evidence to back that up and linguistic evidence. Uh, One thing that I would say is that over time, the arguments about the whys of the Thule migration have become much more sophisticated. It was initially proposed that they were simply following whales across an ice-free northwest passage. And then the very person who, who championed that idea actually rejected his own idea in favor of a meteoric iron hypothesis that people were being drawn by the lure of iron because these were people who were starting to use iron in their technology and it was much more effective than ground slate. And the other thing that we have come to realize is that the Thule were not an isolated people in the Bering Strait. The Arctic is not and has never been an isolated locale. In the Bering Strait, you had many different cultures, and they were competing for space, and they were competing for resources, and there's evidence that there was warfare. They have slat armor that's coming into being at this time, so it was a multi-ethnic mix. And there was lots of competition, and there was social hierarchies beginning to form. So over time, although we've been very certain that there was a population migration towards Greenland and Arctic Canada, we've also become much more sophisticated in our arguments. And we're looking beyond just, oh, it's following whales because that was the basis of their culture, or oh, it was iron because iron was such a huge technological boon for the Thule. If you had iron, oh, you were in really good shape and um, you can do so many nice things with iron that you can't do with ground slate. So yes, that would be a powerful impetus, but rather than an either or, it could be social push full factors that are much more complicated given the multi-ethnic character of the Bering Strait at that time. Yeah, and just to close on, or to, you know, close on that comment, the thing to me that's really interesting about that is we, I think, are beginning to get at a, a point in anthropology where we're starting to understand complexity. Surprisingly, it's taken us as long as it has. We're always looking for, wait, is it this reason or is it that reason? Is it Are they related to this culture? Are they related to that culture? The reality is, why can't we have multiple cultures, multiple push-pulls, People are complicated, and they've always been complicated. And again, that gets at the point we need to develop equally complicated tools to get at that in a comprehensive way. And I think that we're starting to do that in a lot of ways. Um, and that I find that very refreshing. And migration is one of those things that requires that multi-pronged approach to really get at all of those finer points. Because if you just choose one thing, you may or may not uh, end up with the right answer. If you choose five things or ten things that are getting at it from all angles, then you're more likely not to miss something that could be quite significant. Again, to kind of return humanity to the past, to, for lack of a better word. And I think that's what exactly what um, I seek doing uh, in my own research, to try to really embrace the complexity of the people that we study, rather than try to make it a simplistic thing of the environment or this kind of technology or this kind of thing could be all those things and many more that we will never be able to fully get at. But the more we try, I think, the more we start to understand that indeed people have been very complicated for a very long period of time. 
I think that's a really good point, and I think you both have brought up some really important questions about humanity in the past and how we study specifically migration in the past. So I want to thank you both for coming today. I think you had a really great conversation. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. For those of you listening, we will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. And like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU. Or check out our website at anthropology.osu.edu.